Good morning, church. How are you doing? Good to see you this morning. Well, it is Mother's Day, and I'm probably going to commit one of the cardinal sins of preaching and not preach a message towards mothers on Mother's Day. Is that all right? But at least it's not as bad as I did a few years ago. A few years ago, when it was Mother's Day, I preached on qualifications for eldership. So that was, that was a pretty big faux pas. My, my daughters beat me up later for that. Uh, mothers, we want to we wanna, we wanna just say we love you. Um, we love the fact that of all you do for us. Um, but this morning, I do want to continue our series on mission and explosion of joy. And uh, in a passage that we see here, now this passage I've preached on a number of times. I think I've preached on this passage two other times in our church. And so I was really tempted this week just to dredge up an old sermon and have the week off and not really study because I've done, I've done it before. And to be, to be honest, would any of you know? Like, would you know that it was an old sermon? Maybe not, because when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is pretty good. I'm amazed that I wrote this, you know, three, four years ago. This is good stuff. Um, so I was tempted to do that. But then as I studied the passage again, I was just blown away by what I, what I learned in the passage. And in the passage that, we, that, we, that we're going to be studying today, we see these different individuals come to know Jesus. And we see that the way, the way they come to know Jesus. And there are these four different ways in the passage that these people come to know Jesus. So the very first way that we see that they come to know Jesus, and this is going to be really simple, okay, is they come to know Jesus through preaching, through preaching. If you just look down in your Bibles in John chapter 1, verse 35, uh, John the Apostle, who's recording this and writing this, he says, the next day. Now, as soon as you see that timing marker, that forces you to ask immediately what happened the previous day. And back in verse 19, we see that John is recording the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was this anointed preacher who appeared in the wilderness. He, he was preaching a baptism of repentance. And the Levites and the Pharisees went out to John and they went to ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? And John said, no, that's not who I am. Then who are you? And he said, well, I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And then he actually said this. He said, but there is one who stands among you. You don't even see him. He's standing right here, right among you. You don't even see him. And the strap of his sandal, I'm not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, then in verse uh, 29, we read that the next day, uh, Jesus came walking along and John saw him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he said, I would not have known that he was this except God had told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I proclaim to you that this one is the Son of God. And then in verse 35, it is now the next day, so the third day, and John is standing with his disciples, and Jesus once again walks by, and John says, Behold again, the Lamb of God. See, do you get that? There's these three-day sequence. On the first day, the Levites and the priests come to Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, the, I'm not the Messiah, but he's standing among you. On the next day, he, pro he proclaims, behold, when he sees Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then on the third day, 
He sees Jesus again, and he only has two disciples with him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then it says in verse 37 that those disciples, when they heard this, they followed Jesus. So how did they begin their journey of following Jesus? Really simply, it was through the preaching of John the Baptist. And still today, the way that many people become followers of Jesus is through spirit-anointed preaching. Preaching that points to Jesus and that says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When I was in Texas studying to be a minister at Dallas Seminary, I had a privilege to hear Billy Graham speak, the famous evangelist from last century at Texas Stadium. And I was really looking forward to it because I'd read Billy Graham's uh, biography, Just As I Am, and he's one of my heroes. And I, so I went along to Texas Stadium and I was waiting to be blown away by Billy Graham's preaching. You know, I was waiting to hear this amazing message because Billy Graham you know, has preached to millions of people around the world. And Billy Graham got up and when he got up, he spoke and he just spoke the most simple gospel message you will ever hear. Simple gospel message. And I thought to myself, man, is that it? <laughs> like, Billy... Can't you bring something better than that? I mean, it wasn't all that exciting. It was just simple. It was just about Jesus. It was about our need. We're sinners. It's about Jesus, how he died as our substitute. And Billy just said, come forward now. And as soon as he said, come forward, thousands streamed forward. Thousands left their seat and came forward. You see, because one of the ways that God has ordained, and it's not really about the preacher, it's all about God, one of the ways that he's ordained that people will come to him, is through spirit-anointed preaching, where preachers say, behold, the Lamb of God. They proclaim the gospel. What is the gospel? It's about Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. He is that substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. What did he come for? He, come, he came to take away the sins of the world. What happens if you receive him? You receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You are changed. And so one of the ways that God has ordained, and it's foolish, I know preaching is foolish, it's foolish. The world says, preachers, they're so foolish to stand up and proclaim Jesus, it's foolish. But one of the ways that God has ordained is through the foolishness of preaching. When God, when Christ is preached, and God is working in a heart, Christ becomes the wisdom of God, and the power of God, Paul says. Well, then we see another way that people become Christians. Not only do they become Christians through preaching, but we see that Christians, people become Christians through friendship. In verse 38, we read that Jesus turned and he saw them, that's the two disciples of John, following him, and he said to them, what are you seeking? I love this. This is, this is the first words out of the lips of Jesus in the Gospel of John. He sees these two people coming after him and he says, what are you seeking? You know, that's like Jesus' words to you today. What are you seeking? What are you going after? What are you looking for in life? And these disciples, they turn back to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, this is not just a request of like, Jesus, can you let us know which hotel you're at or what your address is. This is not just a simple request for information, but rather they are asking whether they can spend time with Jesus so they can find out whether he is the Lamb of God. And do you notice Jesus doesn't palm them away? 
He doesn't push them aside. He just simply says, come and you will see. You want to find out if I am the Lamb of God? Come, be with me, spend time with me, and you will see. And, and we read in the text that because it was late in the evening, that they spent the whole night with Jesus, probably talking and having conversations and eating food. And we'll find out later that it was through that friendship, through that time with Jesus, that they actually discovered who he was. You know, John Dixon is a leading Christian apologist, and he's a, a Christian historian, and he writes that his introduction to faith came not through family tradition, a Sunday school, church attendance, or any other formal means of religious instruction. But he says he came to faith through the irresistible power of friendship and good food. He writes, one of the relics of Australia's Christian heritage is the once-a-week scripture lesson offered in many state schools around the country. And he says that usually the people who offer these scripture lessons are elderly people from local churches. And he said, I took my chances with these harmless old ladies because non-scripture, if you didn't want to do it, you would have to do real homework under the supervision of a real teacher. He says, one of the scripture teachers, Glenda was her name, she had the courage to invite her entire class to her home for discussions about God. And he says, the invitation would have gone unnoticed, except that she added, if anyone gets hungry, I'll be making hamburgers, milkshakes, and scones. And so one Friday afternoon, several weeks later, he writes, I was sitting on a comfy couch in this woman's home with half a dozen classmates feasting on hamburgers and bracing myself for the God bit. I had never been to church or even had a religious conversation at length, so this was an entirely new experience. And he says, I, can, I remember thinking that there was nowhere to run. I'd eaten much of her food, and so I couldn't even get up off the couch if I tried. And as I looked around the room, they were all skeptics like me. And I was amazed that she would open her home to us. Some of the lads were the worst of sinners in our school. One was a drug user. One was a class clown and a bully. One was a petty thief with a string of break and enters to his credit. But every Friday afternoon, we came back. We came back. We came back. And he says, I couldn't figure Glenda out. She was intelligent and wealthy. She had an exciting social life, married to a leading Australian businessman. Why would she do this? Why would she invite these young men in? Well, she said, well, he says, as we drank and talked, it was clear that this was no missionary ploy on her part. And as we ate together and she treated us like friends, she introduced us to the ultimate friend, Jesus, the friend of sinners. You see, how do people become Christians? It's by us opening up our lives and like Jesus, inviting them to come and see Come and see the one who we know is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But not only do people come to know Jesus through preaching, through friendship. As I told you, this is going to be such a simple message, isn't it? Such a simple message. Through preaching, through friendship. But next, we read that people become Christians through personal testimony. Look down in verse 40, we read, Then one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found Messiah. I love this. What is the very first thing that Andrew does after he finds Jesus? 
What is the very first thing that he does? After he finds Jesus, he goes, gets his brother Simon and says, we've found him. We found the Messiah. You know, one of my pastor friends in New Zealand is a man named Miles. And Miles grew up in a family that didn't know anything about God. And when Miles' sister was a teenager, she went to a Christian youth camp. And she came back believing in Jesus. And one of the first things that she did was she invited Miles to come with her to youth group on Friday night. And so Miles came along, but Miles was blind drunk. Because it was Friday night, and that's what he did every Friday night. But the people there loved him. And eventually he discovered who Jesus was and repented of his sin and trusted in the gospel. And now Miles is a pastor who is used by God. You know, some of us, I know, think that we could never be used by God because we are not John the Baptists. We're not preachers. We could never get up on a stage like this and preach. But God doesn't call all of us and gift all of us to be preachers. But we can, even though we're not gifted in that way, we can do what Andrew did. We can just tell people our testimony. We can tell them that we have found the Messiah. Now look at how Jesus responds to Simon in verse 42. Jesus, when he sees Simon, he says, So you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas. In Aramaic, that's the word Peter or the rock. Now, whenever you see a change of name in the Bible, it's significant. Peter's whole life was being transformed by Jesus. You know, I wonder if one of the objections that we have to sharing the gospel with our family and friends, one of the objections that you might have is maybe you think, man, I could never see how that person could ever become a believer. They are just so hardened, so anti-Jesus, so anti-Christianity, they could never become a Christian. Well, let me tell you something. Don't judge their ability to change by their hardness, but judge it by the power of the gospel. I mean, we are talking about the one who it says in Romans 4 verse 17, who gives life to the dead and calls the things that do not exist as though they do. This is the one. And for every single person who becomes a Christian, for the Christian kid who grows up in these pews, to the person who's a rebel and who's far from God, who you would never expect to become a Christian, for anyone ever who becomes a Christian, it is always a miracle. No one is more savable than others. We were all dead in our transgressions and sins. We were all darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us. And it's only that God stepped in and God worked and God opened blind eyes and he softened hardened hearts. And so don't judge Judge it by what you see. Judge it by what the Word of God says. The Bible says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But not only do people become Christians through preaching, through friendship, and through personal te testimony, but finally we see in this passage, as we was read out before, that people become Christians, and this is ultimately really important, by having a personal encounter with Jesus. If you've never had a personal encounter with Jesus, then you're not really a Christian. You become a Christian by having this personal encounter with 
Jesus, look down in verse 43, we read this. The next day, so this is the fourth day in the sequence, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, we have found him. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now in using the plural we, he was suggesting that it's not just me who's found him, but there's others who have found him. As we've seen in the story, Simon had found him. Um, Andrew had found him. You know, one of the most powerful things that you can do is not just tell people uh, about Jesus, about your personal testimony, but you can invite them, like at the end of this month, to the church. Invite them to meet other believers who have trusted in Jesus. And when they see that, that's very, very powerful. Now, you'll notice that Philip calls Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, this was normal. It was normal in the first century to call someone from the place that they came from and, from who, and, who, and describe them from the place that they came from and who their parents were. So Jesus came from Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth and his stepfather was Joseph. But it was this very fact that Jesus was from Nazareth that caused such a problem for Nathaniel. You see, Nathaniel was not the sort of person that just accepted anything. Like, Nathaniel was not that sort of person that if you just told him, he just accepted it. Nathaniel had to investigate it for himself. He had to look into things clearly for himself. And he had questions. And so he responds in verse 46 when he hears that Jesus came from Nathaniel. He says, from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? You see, Nazareth was a very insignificant place. It was a very small little village. It wasn't even the capital of Galilee. And it featured in none of the messianic prophecies. So when Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Also, maybe, because he uses the word good there in the sentence, maybe it was also the case that Nazareth had a bit of a shady side, a bit of a dark underbelly. Maybe that's what he was saying. Can anything good come out of that place? That place where there are a lot of sinners? Well, notice how Philip responds to Nathaniel. He says to him, come and you will see. He doesn't answer Nathaniel's objection. Maybe at this point he didn't even know how to answer Nathaniel's objection. He just says, come and you will see. Now I think we should try our best to answer people's questions, to answer people's objections that they have about faith. Christianity is a reasonable faith and there are answers for questions. But I reckon... When anyone comes to faith in Jesus, it's not because they've had all their questions answered. It's typically because they have encountered Jesus for themselves. And look down in verse 47, we read that when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That term Israelite was a way of addressing people. It was a, is a word of honor, of privilege. But notice he says, you are a true Israelite. And he modifies that by saying, in whom there is no deceit. Unlike Jacob, our forefather, who was a deceiver, who deceived people. You're not like that, Nathaniel. You're authentic. 
You're being real. You're not like the rest of the Israelites who are trying to prove their righteousness from the law. And with Nathanael's mind still reeling, he asks, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, this is one of the most cryptic statements in the New Testament. For centuries, people have wondered, have tried to decipher the meaning of this. You know, we know that the fig tree was a symbol of someone's home, and we know that Jewish men would study the law under the fig tree. And so maybe what was happening was that Nathaniel was studying the law under the fig tree, and maybe as he studied the law of God, he realized that he was a sinner, He realized that he needed a savior. And maybe while it was under that fig tree, Nathaniel cried out to God and said, God, would you provide me a substitute? Would you provide me a Messiah? We don't really know, but what we do know is this. We do know that Nathaniel had some sort of religious experience under that fig tree that only he and God knew about. And so when He hears that Jesus saw him. He exclaims, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I thought only God and I knew about that, but you knew about it, Jesus. So you are the Messiah. You are the son of God. He had this encounter with Jesus. You see, how do people become Christians? It's actually through preaching. It's through friendship. It's through personal testimony, but it's also through having this encounter with Jesus. And it's fascinating. Do you, I don't know if this, was your, if this was the case for you, but this was certainly the case for me. Even though when I became a Christian, I sought Jesus out and I tried to find out about Jesus and I, I sought Jesus and I came forward and responded to the gospel. Do you know what I found out afterwards? That the whole time that I was seeking Jesus, Jesus was seeking me. I found Jesus, but actually Jesus found me. That's what you find out when you come to Jesus. So this is a really simple message. How do we help other people find Jesus? We invite them to come and see. We invite them to hear gospel preaching. We invite them into our lives to be our friends so that they'll see Jesus in us. We share with them our personal testimony This is what I've discovered about Jesus. It's really, really simple. So why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? It's that simple, people. We just need to invite people to come and see. We need to invite people into our lives. We, We need to share with people our personal testimony. Why don't we do it? Well, we know it's going to cost. It's going to cost time. It's going to cost effort. And there's other things that come in and crowd it out. But it's not really about that because the things that are in our schedule are the things that that we really want to do. They're the things that we value. And as I said last week, if you want to move evangelism and mission from being a legalistic burden to being an explosion of joy, it happens at a heart level. You see, for John the Baptist, it was his joy to point out Jesus and say... There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was his joy for his two disciples to stop following him and to start following Jesus. That was his joy. 
You know, for uh, Andrew, it was his joy to say, Simon, Simon, come and see, I found the Messiah. It was his joy. And for Philip, it was his joy to say to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, we have found him. So how do you get that joy? How do you get that explosion of joy that will make you want to invite people to come and see? Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? It's this. Is that the invitation to come and see is not just a one-time invitation. But it's an invitation to come into a relationship with Jesus where you are continuing to see. You are continuing to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what blew me away this week. Look down in verse 50. In verse 50, Jesus turns to Nathanael and he says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. (laughs) You think you've seen something? You ain't seen nothing yet. You're going to see things that are going to blow every circuit in your brain, Nathaniel. You're going to see greater things. And guess what? He would see greater things. In chapter 2, at the wedding at Canaan, he would see water turn to wine. In chapter 4, he would see an official son heal. In chapter 5, he would see the paralytic healed at the pool of Bethsaida. In chapter 6, he would see Jesus feed 5,000 with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. He would see Jesus walk on the water. In chapter um, 9, he would see a man born blind healed. In chapter 11, he would see Lazarus raised from the dead. And in chapter 12, when Jesus was revealed as the king of Israel and when the time of his death approached, he said, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And when he prayed, father, glorify your name. Do you know what happened? A voice from heaven spoke and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And on the eve of the crucifixion of Jesus in his great high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And then in the ultimate act of glory, Jesus went to the cross and died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he didn't just stay dead. Three days later, he rose again. And Nathanael saw all those things. You see, the invitation to come and see is not a one-time invitation. It's an invitation to continue to come and see. There are greater things to see. There's greater things to learn about Jesus. The glory of God, you don't ever come to the end of it. You will continually forever in heaven be basking in the glory of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I love this. Look down in verse 51. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, the word you here in the original text is in the plural. Meaning that these words were not just for Nathaniel, but they were for whoever is listening. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and you will see the angels of God descending and uh, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if I can take some time, I just want to take some time to explain this because this is pretty awesome, this little section here. So come with me in this. You see, this statement here took Nathaniel back 2,000 years to the time of the patriarch Jacob. Jacob was Abraham's grandson. You've got Jacob, uh, you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, and then you've got Jacob. 
And to understand this statement, we need to understand its context in Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, Jacob had just stolen the birthright from his older brother Esau. And because of fear of Esau's wrath at the advice of his mother, Jacob had to flee for his life. So Jacob ran and he came to a valley that was covered with rocks. Now we pick up the story in verse 11, we read this, it'll come up on the screen. And he, that's Jacob, came to a place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. You know you're really tired if you're willing to use a stone as a pillow, don't you? That's how tired Jacob was. He was in terrible shape. He was running for his life. Didn't know what his future would hold. He deceived his brother. His brother was breeding murderous threats against him. His life was a mess. But then we read this in verse 12. As he slept, he dreamt. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then we go on to read in the next few verses that at the top of that ladder stood the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Jacob and he said, he reaffirmed his covenant promises. He said, Jacob, I will bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I will bring you back to the land from which you have fled. Now back to Jesus. (laughs) Jesus says that they will see the angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. And when Jesus says that, what he is saying is he saying, I am the ladder. I am the place where people encounter God. I am the place where undeserving Jacobs can have their sin forgiven and be made right with God. So here's the thing. If you're running from God this morning, if you're alone in a wilderness, if you're sleeping on stones, you don't have to climb up this ladder of religion to make your way to God. No, Jesus has opened heaven for you through the cross. But here's something else I want you to notice. Notice again, Jesus says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now the Bible says that the angels of God are ministering spirits sent to serve the heirs of salvation. And Jesus says, when you come to me, When you come to me, you will see heaven opened, and you'll see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that when you come to me, your eyes will be opened to spiritual reality. Your eyes will be opened to spiritual reality. You know, when we come to Christ, our eyes are open. As the writer of Hebrews says, we have now come to Mount Zion to thousands upon thousands of angels. Being a Christian is a supernatural thing. And you see back in, back to Jacob in Genesis 28, in Genesis 28 and verse 16, after this amazing dream, Jacob awoke and he said this, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not even know it. What a tragedy. The Lord was in that place. The Lord was with Jacob and he didn't even know it. 
Kent Hughes, in his commentary, he writes, the sad state of modern Christianity is that we have de-supernaturalized the Christian faith. And so we only look at things from a secular perspective, not with the eyes of faith. We don't see that we are in a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual war. We don't see that the Word of God is a sword, that prayer is a call to take up arms, and that we are in a spiritual battle. And you see, what will motivate us to invite people to come and see when we realize the spiritual battle that we are in, the spiritual war that is raging out there, there is a spiritual battle going on. And we need to realize that that's that's taking place. And we need to take our stand in that spiritual battle and take up arms in that spiritual battle and pray for God to break through in people's lives. Last Sunday, I stood up before you and I, and I preached my guts out to you and preached my heart to you, church, and I'm so thankful for your grace towards me. Thank you so much for loving me and my weakness last week. It was so beautiful to see. Just to let you know, Winston the dog is still alive. For all those Doug lovers here today, he's still alive. He's on his deathbed, but I'm praying that he'll hope he'll last for a couple, couple more months yet, just so you know. But um, one of the things that happened this week is um, Pastor Graham and I, we went down to the prayer room on Wednesday afternoon, and we just got on our knees and got on our face before God, and we prayed about some of the things that are happening in the life of our church. And I was able to unload some of my burdens before the Lord. And we prayed together and the presence of the Lord came. And I realized I had been seeing my life from a human perspective and not from heaven's perspective. Not from heaven's perspective. See, because Jesus has already won the victory. Has he not? Jesus has won the victory. Jesus has defeated death. He's defeated sin. He's defeated the devil. And we stood on that victory and proclaimed the victory of Christ, the victory of Jesus. And I don't still know how things are going to work out, but I know this, God works all things together for the good, for what? For those who love the Lord. And as I proclaimed the victory of Christ and, and, and put the burdens at the feet of Jesus, Jesus did what he promised. He gave me his peace. He gave me his joy. All those things returned. Brothers and sisters, there are some things, some battles that we can only fight on our knees. I've been, I've been, I love that worship song. I've been singing it all week long. When I fight, I'll fight on my knees. With my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. Amen? So here's the thing. Why, what will motivate us to... Out of joy, invite people to come and see. It's when our hearts are captivated by the grace and glory of Jesus. And when our eyes are open to the spiritual reality. You know, who here loves the show Bondi Rescue? You love that, you love that show, Bondi Rescue? Anyone? No one here loves it. I'm the only person with my hand up here today. The only person who loves Bondi Rescue. You know, when you watch Bondi Rescue... 
You know, it's, it's awesome, isn't it, to watch them, and they're always scanning the horizon, looking for people who might be drowning. And at the slightest glimpse of someone drowning, they're out there, they shoot out there to save them. But there has been some Bondi rescues, some sad Bondi rescues, when they haven't made it in time. And they pull someone's lifeless body out of the water. And it's so sad, isn't it? You know, we are a bunch of lifesavers. That's what we are. And people are drowning and perishing beneath the waves. And we have been given the only form of rescue, the gospel. So let's be people who, with our eyes open, are scanning the horizon for people who are drowning. And let's be people who invite them to come and see. Come and see Jesus, the one who can transform you, who transformed me, and he can transform you. He could transform you this morning. That's who Jesus is. Let's stand together. Oh Lord, open up our eyes to spiritual reality that we are in a war, we are in a battle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark age. And you've given us You've given us spiritual armor to wear. You've won the victory, Jesus, on the cross. And in faith, we need to claim that victory and stand in that victory and shout that victory out. Lord, we pray for this coming Friday night for the Alpha Course. We pray, Lord, that you might work in the hearts of people, that you might draw people to yourself. Lord, it's our joy to share you with others because of what of who you are and what we've discovered about you and the grace that we've received in Christ. Lord, we pray for our elders as they meet on Wednesday night to pray about the land across the road, Lord. We pray that you would give them wisdom and you'd give them your direction for your church, Lord. Lord, we want to, we want to, we only want to go where you want us to go. We only want to do what you want us to do, Lord. Lord, I pray for people in this room here who, who are feeling hopeless and they're feeling they're feeling they've got no joy, they've got no peace, they're burdened down. Lord, I pray, as I preached last week, that they wouldn't look inside of themselves, they'll look to you, Lord Jesus, the author, the perfecter of their faith, who alone can give them joy, can give them peace, can give them rest, because he has won the mighty victory on the cross. Lord, we know that there was a chasm that stood between us. We could not, we could not step into that chasm, but you did it for us, Jesus, you were that ladder. You were that ladder, even though we are, we are just so sinful, Lord. You stepped in and you died on the cross for us. And we worship you this morning, Lord Jesus, and praise and proclaim your name in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen. Amen. amen.